0: Hello and welcome to Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Sebastian Folks. Sebastian's new novel is Paris Echo, which tells the twined stories of Tariq, a Moroccan boy who runs away from home to travel to Paris, in some ways in search of where his mother spent her childhood, and of Hannah, an American postdoctoral researcher who's in Paris attempting to investigate the role of women during the occupation. Um... Now, Sebastian, writing in the tone of voice of a 19-year-old Moroccan boy, um, doesn't this count as cultural appropriation? Aren't you risking the brickbats of the sort of... I hope so. I hope
1: so. Um, I think that all serious fiction is appropriation. I mean, that's the definition of what serious fiction is. You are appropriating the experiences of men, women, children from other countries, other backgrounds, other times, that you have not had. And you're inventing them and trying to make them feasible, convincing, lively and engaging. If you are talking as I am in in the voice of a 19-year-old boy, you have to say is this feasible? Have I got this right for 19? And then the other character, as you say, is an American woman. I have to make sure I'm sufficiently American, sufficiently female in her voice, though in my view, the the sex of a character is seldom a very important part of them. I think that when Emily Bronte, for instance, wrote Wuthering Heights, which is a historical novel set in the 18th century, and she ascribed to Heathcliff a man of unknown background, possibly Lascar, whatever that is, certainly brown-skinned from a different culture, different country, different time, different sex, from her own. At the end of each bit when she described what Heathcliff was thinking and feeling, she probably said to herself, Emily, have you got this right? Are you quite sure that there's not too much of you in this, that this really is this other person? And I think she did a good job, and I think that's what fiction is. Do you think there's ever, ever a case that...
0: You should be. or oh, is it? Is it just a matter of technique? It's a matter of being wary of
1: inventing too far, or? But you know, if you succeed, you succeed. I think you up the ante. It, I mean, the reader, with any luck, very quickly gets absorbed in the story that you've written and isn't aware of the who the writer is. They're not always thinking, you know, this is a white man or a brown woman or a green whatever. But nevertheless, it's slightly in the back of their mind. And you know, when you read D. H. Lawrence writing about. Lady Chatterley's sexual feelings. You're thinking, whoa, steady on, mate. You've got to make sure you get this right because you're, you're risking a huge belly flop if you get it wrong." But I think that's the risk that writers take, and that's the the challenge you set yourself. But if you go up onto the high board, you know, it's a high tariff, and yeah. that's the risk you take.
0: And what was the sort of germ of the book? I mean, you've got these two these two stories. How do they how do they come together? I mean, obviously, on Basically, you know, Tariq lodges for
1: free with Hannah from quite early on in the book. They, I suppose, it, without wanting to make it sound too sort of schematic, they, they represent different ways of living a life. And that's really what Paris Echo is about. Um, it's an idea that I've been sort of turning over in my l- mind a lot in the last few years. And the idea is that if you are very well informed about history and culture um, and literature and you understand how things join up and you understand why streets are named this and who they're named after and all that kind of thing, does that necessarily mean you live a better and more worthwhile life than someone who is ignorant of all these things and just takes life as it comes every day? In which case, like Tariq, you're you're a little bit like a pinball in a machine, bumping from one surprise to another the flippers being worked well I think the analogy is starting to break down (laughs) when we get to the flippers but I it came this thought came to me a lot thinking about my children and their education and the generation in its 20s who have been educated very differently from the way that someone of my generation was insofar as they they're not taught to retain large amounts of information the retention of information is a function that they have outsourced to a small computer in their pocket and nor have they nor are they taught to read a large number of books They can do arts degrees without having read many books. Uh, And that doesn't make them stupid. Uh, It makes them different, though. Uh, So I was interested in that, and I was particularly interested in the question of remembering from history lessons we learn. I sit on a a government advisory group for the commemoration of the First World War, and we all sit around and say it's very important. Young people should learn and remember history, lessons, etc., etc., and in the middle of one of these things, I suddenly found myself, what if this is all complete twaddle? I mean, why does an 18... What what lesson is a 17-year-old kid learning from the First World War? Never assassinate an archduke. I mean, you know, that's just... <laughs> it's not a bad <laughs> <anybody> lesson. <laughs> <even word out. laughs> but so I just wanted to examine this whole... These received ideas and to see how they work.
0: And you've also... There's a sense in which Tariq is very kind of hungry for sort of life. and after, I mean, obviously he's 19, so he's... <laughs> incredibly horny all the time and Hannah is sort of damaged by a past relationship and she's sort of retreated into this you know, her scholarship kind of it somehow isolates her from the
1: world, doesn't it? Yes, I mean her intellectual belief is that the uh, one rather high-flown moment I think she says something about she's so enamoured of the past and people who lived in the past particularly unknown people not Napoleon and so on but unknown women as it were that she... F- she feels their lives are more important than her own in some way. And she says something about the uh, the membrane of death is semi-permeable. In other words, we're all alive together, all the people who've lived before. We're all... Their influence and the importance of their lives, the, not the importance, the value of their lives, is still with us today. But she herself, as you say, has actually retreated personally from the world of emotion and emotional connection with other people because she has been traumatised by something which happened to her on her first visit to Paris... So part of her process is, is learning to re-engage a little bit more with, with the today, with the now, and with people who are perfectly friendly to her and might you know, make her feel happier, really.
0: That line about the semi-permeable membrane, I mean, this is a book that's actually haunted by the past and, indeed, some, there are some sort of characters who may or may not quite exist. There's a sort of character called Victor Hugo, rather well, kind of audaciously who, who, who rides a tube putting on puppet shows there's a there's a mysterious girl who the, um, Tariq becomes interested in Clemence I mean how much is Paris Echo intended as a sort of ghost story?
1: Well it's complicated there, are, there is a question there's a theme of ghosts and doubles that, that runs through it which is partly a fairly natural outcome of Hanov's obsession by the past and if you if you're imagining the past as I've done a great deal researching novels and you you walk around in in Paris itself, and you think, well, a woman just like this, but living in during the time of the occupation, what would she have done? How would she have managed? And you know, does it really matter that it wasn't her? It was her mother. It makes no difference, really. I mean, I have sort of touched on this in other novels, really. The fact that of possible, uh, what I wrote a book called A Possible Life, which is quite a lot about about this theme. And the Victor Hugo character, I think it's up to the reader. Uh, You can either say, ah, this is an exciting departure for Sebastian as he goes into magic realism. But a lot of people are completely allergic to magic realism. So there is a perfectly realistic workaday explanation of who he is, which is simply... uh, a chap who tries to make a living with a puppet show on the metro, and I saw someone exactly like that. So that's where he came from, and he reminded me of Victor Hugo. His puppet show wasn't actually an enactment of Les Misérables, but it, in my in my book, it is. Clemence is a character who flits in and out of the story, and she may be, she's a is a suggestion that she represents Tariq's lost mother. Her name, Clemence, meaning clemency, mercy. His his actual mother was called Hanan, which in Arabic means clemency or mercy. It may be that she is an embodiment of his hashish fueled fantasy. I, I think, to me, you know, yes, the reader, I'm asking you just to relax and go with, bear with, as Miranda Hart would say. She actually, what she really represents to me is a possible better outcome for the world had had things gone better in in French colonial Africa and she is part part North African by descent and she the key thing that she brings to the book is how well at some point France in Algeria ran before it didn't go well at all and ended in a brutal ethnic cleansing and so on so she represents, to some extent, the possibility of a better world and the po- and sort of the higher parts of of French civilization, its civilizing mission, which it took very very seriously, and how tragic it was, how, how badly wrong that went in Algeria, and how that fallout is still being felt in Paris today. My, my book set in 2006, so before the big atrocities in Paris, but I do think it's quite clear that the are they
0: intended to sort of Hang over it, and the reader's knowledge
1: is sort of proleptic irony. I mean, you're... Uh, yeah, proleptic irony—very, very much a phrase that scribbled on my uh, laptop. But yeah, I, it was better for me that the book set before these things. Otherwise, it looks like I'm making a journalistic comment on them. But clearly, the the problem that France has had and still has with Islamic fundamentalism is slightly different from ours because it's much more connected to their empire, um, and particularly Algeria, Morocco. And, you know, there is an argument that much of this is a continuation of that struggle.
0: Yeah. This, there's a, a word, you may not have proleptic irony on your laptop, but autoscopy <laughs> is something that runs through it. This idea of standing outside yourself and looking at yourself is a poem with Musée, by Mousse, yeah. which is a real poem that yeah. you, you discuss in the book, but also Tariq, very often at crucial finds himself sort of standing outside himself and looking at himself. What were you aiming to do with that?
1: I, d- I discovered this phenomenon of autoscopy when I was I lived in Paris for two months to sort of try and search for this book. I just felt there was a book in Paris for me. And twice a week, I used to go to the Alliance Francaise um, to go to French comprehension lessons because unlike most uh, English people, I can speak quite well and have quite a good accent. But I... I find it quite hard to hear or understand rapidly spoken French, so I'm the sort of opposite of your sixteen year old exchange student. I can speak well good grammar, good accent, but when Monsieur and Madame are rattling on I'm slightly <laughs> lost, so I would squeeze my aging body into this child's desk and the, we had I had a very good teacher actually and he introduced me to this idea talking about de Musset, the idea of someone seeing another person who is it's not. It's not quite as sort of plonking as the sort of doppelganger double thing, and it's a momentary thing. But Musset wrote this whole poem about it. This man who is haunted by what appears to be himself walking towards him at all stages of his life, and in the end, he corners this sort of ghost and says, "We well, you know who are you? What are you?" And the the, the, uh, the second person, the double, explains. It just seemed to me a good way of of getting at some of the themes of the book, the the questions of how things might have gone otherwise, had different decisions been taken politically, how people's personal private lives might have changed had they not met this person or that person. And it's also because Tarek is in the in the process of growing up and young young teenage boys are very narcissistic. They're always looking at themselves in the mirror. Well I was going to say the echo
0: narcissist thing is
1: is that, that a sort of gentle tip of the hat or have you, you put you know, have you attempted to weave the echo narcissist idea through it? I looked at I look I tried to, I thought let's give this also give this a great sort of mythic underpinning and I thought in the end there was a, quite a lot in the book already and that was just too much but the, it, it's picked up at the end just verbally once actually the story of that you know that myth it doesn't really work in the, doesn't map onto this it no, doesn't though. map on there no. I thought since so you do open with with Tarek looking at himself in the no. mirror there's some, something going on here and his girlfriend at the end does does mention if you, if you've stopped being narcissistic then I'll stop echoing what you say all the time but that's it's just a verbal thing but i mean what the victor hugo quotation which is used at the beginning of the book what is the future but an echo of the past in the present i came across that Quite by chance, after I'd finished writing the book. But I felt. God, I almost felt like you'd, <laughs>
0: you, you, you'd proceeded from that.
1: I know, I, it, it, you're supposed to think that. It's because there evidence. it is yeah. in the preliminary page. But I came across it quite by chance. A friend of mine pointed me towards it. And I felt the sort of Victor Hugo was presiding over my book. It. But was the
0: book already called Paraseco? Yeah,
1: I'd called it Paraseco before I found the quotation from Victor Hugo. And then I couldn't locate the quotation. and. Uh, Google was very unhelpful. I mean, he did his best. I mean, it was marvellous, really. But eventually, a guy called David Bellos, who's um, a professor at uh, at Princeton. Um, He's a biographer of Hugo's, isn't he? He's a biographer. He helped me find it, or rather one of his students helped find it, in a book called Long Kiki, The Man Who Loved. Very good.
0: Now, another theme of the book, or another layer of the book, is a series of narratives, which are what Hannah's studying, which are these sort of oral what what now... Always get repackaged as forgotten voices from the yes. French occupation. Yes. Now, did you did
1: you make all those up, or yeah, were some of those? Yeah, the, the I was talking about what well, Hannah's working day. She goes to this historical research centre in Paris in the 9th arrondissement, uh, and then she listens to these record these tapes of old women who came in and, and said just as people do. Oral history has been become quite important in the last 20, 30 years. And I thought, well, rather than just say, have her pre in a rather sort of cumbersome way, let's actually hear these women, let's hear what they say. And it would be much more exciting for the reader to to hear the voice of the past speaking to them directly. So uh, I made up, there are two, only two she hears. One is a woman called Mathilde, who's um, a very tough, rough woman from the sort of Edith Piaf part of Paris, and the, the other one, Juliette, also sort of from a fairly poor background but slightly more, uh, slightly more delicate character, you might say. And it was, it was fun and interesting to do. And again, you know, more cultural appropriation of these women's experiences. And um, then you hear, th- and obviously Hannah learns a lot from them. Also, which I hadn't known, not being an expert
0: on French historiography, Hannah describes how actually the experience, the occupation was something that French historians didn't look into for years and years and years. Is that right? I mean, have you exaggerated that or is that essentially... No, I haven't the...
1: exaggerated at all. I mean, the question of how French historians and how French people in general have dealt with those four years is, is a vexed one. But when the the first authentic account of of those four years was written by an American called Robert Paxton, it was published in um, the early 70s, Vichy France, New Old Order, New God, I think it's called, and Paxton's bibliography—he he doesn't have one, because he says there, are, there have been no books. So thirty years on, there were no books for him to consult. And So he got all his all his information out of German archives and some French archives, which makes it a very good book, actually. And very very slowly, it came to be, it came around that French people began to think about it, face it, tell themselves the truth. It was a very long, slow so you business. You have
0: a line in the book that. that that Hannah says that they gradually lost their anxiety
1: about rummaging the archives and finding out what Papa had been up to yes, I think that was a problem for a lot of um young historians. they didn 't want to discover that their father or mother had done something shameful i mean the but the the simple fact what Paxton discovers is that the country was pretty much 50-50 divided um, at the end of the war. Those who wanted the Germans to carry on winning and those who realised that wasn't going to happen, so it's time to back the resistance now. And de Gaulle's genius in 44 was well, first of all, his genius was to persuade Eisenhower to let him march down the Champs-Elysees as though France had liberated itself. And secondly, in the weeks that followed, to persuade all of France that it, it had been résistant, which it hadn't for many very good and complicated reasons.
0: What was it that made you, in the first place, go to Paris and think, there's better to be a novel in Paris or go and hang out there for two months? It's in just, a, I
1: think it was just a sort of weird urge. I was in America at the time, and I just remember saying to my wife, I've got a feeling there's something for me in Paris. I suppose partly a sense of frustration with the city myself. I don't have the sort of dewy-eyed British person's or indeed American person's view of Paris the pavement cafes, wonderful food. I've always found the cuisine quite poor, actually. Um, I don't like croissants. <laughs> and I've, I hate the little hotels, and I've found people rather rude and off-putting. So there's a there's a wonderful idea of Paris. I mean, it is a very beautiful city, undoubtedly, much more so than London, in, in my opinion. But rather than just be sort of grumpy about not liking it as much as other people, I thought, well, let's go and find out about it. You know, what is this city? What is so great about it? And sh- by the end of two months there, I had, I wouldn't say I sort of got deep inside the life of it, because you can't do that unless you are a Parisian. But uh, I'd, A, discovered some nice <laughs> restaurants. Um, but B, I'd, I sort of, you know, really did get a much more sympathetic feeling of why the city is so Did you so take your important. family or did you live there by yourself? I went on my own, which was, I think, is the only way really to absolutely immerse yourself in something like this. I walked all day on my own. Though I did hire a guide, um, someone I found on the internet, who normally takes people to Versailles and the Louvre. And I said, I don't want to go there. I want you to take me to parts of Paris that, that no one has ever asked you to take them to before, and preferably parts you've never been to either. Uh, so we went to a lot of rather grimy you know, suburbs, banlieue but also bits inside Paris, like the 13th arrondissement where Hannah ends up living, which is largely sort of Chinese very modern sort of 60s architecture, not at all the received idea, not the houseman, you know, pavement cafes at all. And I, you know, with with any book, as well as things you want to do, there are things you don't want to do, and I was going, you know, there's certainly going to be no croissant, no pavement cafes, no nice dinners, no romantic bits and things. But inevitably, if you're writing about Paris... the main culinary experience in this is really grotty fried Uh, chicken, uh, isn't uh, it? (laughs) Yes, Tarek works for... uh, The equivalent of Kentucky fried chicken in in Saint-Denis which is this very strange suburb just just north of Paris where it's a town really and there you have the basilica of Saint-Denis in which all the French kings are buried, this this monument to Roman Catholicism and monarchy and you walk across the square and it's like a sort of souk, a bazaar with all the displaced people of North Africa and the Middle East and halal meat and so on and the juxtaposition is just
0: extraordinary. Now as we've I've been discussing this is a very, you know, layered and subtle and thematically complex literary novel, and yet you have another gear. Do you think, you know, you, you, you'll, one moment you'll produce, say, Human Traces, and the next you'll spend six weeks banging out a Bond novel, which will then sell a gazillion copies, which might be, maybe even find slightly irksome. Do you think of your two modes as being like Graham Greene said, you know, I do my entertainments and I do my serious work, or...?
1: Uh, well, I suppose so. I mean, it quite. I don't. I didn't need to put in front of the. I've done two tribute books, as we like to call them, what James Bond one and the P G. Woodhouse. But it wasn't necessary for me to put an entertainment in it because obviously they were. They had someone else's name on the on the cover as well. I don't know. I think it's a. Uh, people who know me are always rather surprised by how serious and sad my novels are because I'm not really a particularly sad companion. You know, I'm quite chirpy, quite humorous person to go on holiday with. And I think they rather like um, seeing these this other side.
0: Finally, I mean, just a tribute to your chirpiness. How about, right, you think this book is dedicated to your dog? Yes, it is. Hector. I'd... It's a very serious novel dedicated to a dog.
1: Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with that, though I was rebuked for it by a friend of mine the other day. He said, no, it's just wrong. You know, it should be dedicated to a human. I don't really see why. I've dedicated all my other books to humans and. Um, Hector's been a great friend and companion to me in the last 10 years, so... This is another departure.
0: But you, you, you did that just as Nausgaard announced that no, no yeah. half-decent writer has ever owned a dog.
1: So. Well, I dedicated the book to Hector long before Nausgaard pontificated about, about dogs. I'm um, afraid I haven't read all of Nausgaard. <laughs> Who has? Who has? Probably not Nausgaard. Anyway, Sebastian folks,
0: thank you very much. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Um, Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.